Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. Welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. If you're a frequent listener to this podcast, then you'll know of a particular fascination with human factors of spaceflight and operations in space. This is really topical at the moment, with current enthusiasm for putting people on Mars, as well as huge steps in commercial spaceflight and those associated partnerships. Therefore, I'm absolutely delighted that this episode will be very much focused on this space theme. And I'm very honoured to be talking to uh, a number of HF practitioners in the NASA Orion space programme. We'll go into more detail about Orion mission shortly, but let's get to know our guests a bit better first. So, if I can ask each of you to tell us who you are and what your official role is, and a quick overview of your career to date. Uh, William, if I could start with you. Uh, yes, I'm uh, glad to be here. Uh, my name is William Foley. I'm the, the NASA System Manager for Orion Human Engineering at the, at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. My background is, uh, my academic background, I have a bachelor degree in aerospace engineering and a systems, uh, sorry, a master's degree in systems engineering. Um, much of my, uh, much of my post, uh, postgraduate uh, work has been in safety and mission assurance. And uh, several years ago, I transitioned over into the human factors domain over here at JSC. Uh, Jason. Well, if I could uh, ask you the same question. Sure, yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Jason Hutt. I am the crew systems integration lead for Artemis II for the Orion program, as well as the human rating lead for Artemis II. Uh, I've been here at Johnson Space Center for 21 years. Uh, started out first 17 years were on the uh, supporting the International Space Station program, uh, where I was an instructor for the crew and supported uh, crew training as well as operations for Space Station over that time. Uh, and for the last four years, I've been the crew station crew systems integration lead for orion uh, which essentially means that it's my responsibility to make sure that the integrated cockpit design comes together in such a fashion that the crew can safely and successfully execute any orion, uh, orion missions or artemis program missions sarah so i'm the deputy systems ma uh, systems manager in the orion human engineering group and uh, my background is that I um, graduated from Northwestern for undergrad uh, in biomedical engineering. Then uh, University of Pittsburgh was a master's in bioengineering, then spent about nine years in the uh, anthropometry and biomechanics facility at JSC, then about two years in oil and gas. And then I've been here about five years at the um, Orion Human Engineering Group at uh, JSC. Fantastic. That's really good. And thank you to all three of you too uh, for giving your time up today. I recognize that even with COVID going on, everybody's time is really precious at the moment and you've got a particularly challenging program ahead. So I guess I need to put a slight caveat in that um, my children are terrified that I'm going to offer us up as a volunteer family that if you need one for this program. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. So, uh, Jason, could you give us um, an overview about what the, the what the Orion program actually is? Sure. Uh, we are 
in the Orion program, we are designing and developing a spacecraft that is capable of taking people beyond low Earth orbit uh, for the first time since 1972, the last time we landed on the moon as part of the Apollo program. Uh, Artemis, the Orion program is just one small element of the overall Artemis program through which we're trying to get uh, return humans to the moon for the first time since those days. So our focus is on the Orion spacecraft, we'll carry the crew. We can support four astronauts in space for up to 21 days in the Orion spacecraft. So that's our design to uh, parameter for that. Uh, Artemis includes not just Orion, it includes the SLS rocket, it includes the uh, ground systems that will recover the crews, launch the crews and recover the crews. It also includes the Lunar Gateway Space Station as well as the human landing system. So, which we will use in future missions for more lunar exploration. So, quite a complex um, uh, an operation then to have, and it it's going to be quite uh, motivating to have such a such a challenge. Um, ah, it's fantastic, yes. So, William, on talking about the HF practitioners involved in the uh, in the program, what is your mission? What is the what the what is the mission of the HF practitioners? So I was thinking for this, uh, I might uh, I might list out what the the mission of our whole branch is. Um, so, okay. Orion Human Engineering, our team is within the the SF3 branch at JSC. Um, that that code doesn't mean much to people outside of JSC, <laughs> but uh, the um, the habitability and human factors branch um, is responsible for ensuring that space human factors, including human physical parameters and performance capabilities and limitations are defined, documented, and applied to the design and operation of vehicles, habitats, and flight crew systems equipment uh, to ensure the safety and productivity of humans in space. Uh, so that's kind of our, our big charter. Um, and it stays mostly the same for the various programs that we support that include Orion. Okay, and how much engagement do you get with your user community? Well, I guess you've got a fixed number of, of astronauts and things. So how much do you engage with them? Actually, quite a bit. Um, we we start off with uh, with each project um, as basically as early as possible. We we want to get engaged and make sure that the the broad scope of of requirements that the human engineering team is responsible for uh, gets applied appropriately to to all the various projects that go into Orion. Um, as well as the system as at a whole. Um, so just to give a, an idea of the, what kind of requirements we, we are responsible for, um, it includes a, a broad range of things uh, such as anthropometry, um, range of motion and strength, uh, as well as odor control, um, software user interface design, um, lighting and legibility, and, and many, many more. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, basically when a new project comes along that's, that's for a program like, like Orion, uh, we'll try to get involved up front to understand uh, the conops about how that project is used within the spacecraft uh, and make sure that we are applying our requirements uh, at the very beginning uh, and defending those requirements. And um, then to directly answer your question about how we engage with our users, uh, we do we do things that we call human in the loop testing or HIDLs, uh, where we'll plan out how to actually put um, an S in a flight like setting um, and allow them to directly engage with a device or a system uh, so that they can give us the feedback about if it's working for them or various ways to improve it. Oh, that, that's really nice to hear that you're getting um, uh, an engagement so early on. It sounds it sounds a really obvious thing to say, but in certainly with a lot of um, 
uh, projects that I've been involved with is not always necessarily the case. So that's that's really cool. So mm -hmm. to have that level of engagement, um, you must have quite a number of practitioners um, and and a quite quite an extensive team. Sarah, can you give us some insight into the I guess the how human practice is represented? So uh, in the branch itself, there's about 18 civil servants and about 30 contractors. So we have groups that are both sort of like the generalized human factors integrators. And then we have folks that have much more specialties. So the specialties could be something like food, acoustics, lighting, exercise, uh, medical. And those, anybody of those, we, if, if there's a specialty, there's a subject matter expert that we can consult with. And then we have folks like us that are these general human factors integrators that are basically um, sort of responsible for like a program. So you have Orion, you have Gateway, you have uh, ISS, you have the Lander, you have commercial folks. And all of us are really responsible for um, making sure that the applicable requirements get levied on that program and that those designs meet with those core human factors requirements. And then we bring in those specialty subsystems because I'm not a food expert, I'm not an acoustics expert. so. I consult with those folks and say, how can we levy this requirement to the best of this capability, especially if they're in violation or not? And so uh, our in individual group, the Orion Human Factors team, has 11 people, and we have it's actually divided into its own hardware side and uh, display side, and so software and hardware. And for us, our, we have a, a whole range of folks. I mean, we have interns uh, and recent college grads all the way up to people with decades of experience. We have folks with just a bachelor's all the way up to PhDs. So, and even the background disciplines are varied. We have human factors engineering, we have biomedical like myself, industrial engineering, COGS psychology, systems engineering. I mean, a whole breadth of, of and depth of disciplines. Everyone can really levy their own personal experience to this job. Um, we also work with safety and mission assurance or materials and property, properties. Um, so, the idea is that the human, uh, human engineering team is involved in projects from formulation to testing and flight. So as we try and get on the gr that ground floor uh, to make sure there's no gaps or issues in the later stages of design. And so we are sort of like the voice of the crew to make sure that they get a voice in the design. And I think so, it's also worth noting, sorry, I just wanted to add in there. Yeah. So William and Sarah and their team also work alongside a, a team on the, with the Lockheed Martin side, uh, another small team of human factors experts who they we work in concert with in the development of the spacecraft and all of its interfaces in hardware. So, okay, well, that, that's yeah. again, it's it's really good to see that that um, I guess the you've got core team and then you've got the contractors supporting um, the, the the wider elements as well. But it just sounds like you've got lots of people there, which is making me insanely jealous. Um, but how much, so how much influence does human factors as a discipline actually have within NASA? Oh, so um, the influence is is immense. I mean, we, as we said, we have the start from the start to the finish, we have the capability to influence that design. However, we're not like an overriding. Uh, we can't over override another group. I mean, if safety and mission assurance has a, a problem, if uh, an, another group has an issue with a particular design, they can levy it just as much as we can. Um, but we are um, sort of that influence to make sure that the, the unit is optimized within the best amount of capability for that human. Okay. 
I think one thing we could give here a little bit of insight into how it works here is that we run a, I run as part of my job, the cockpit working group for Orion. William and Sarah's team will go execute this testing. They will bring back a recommendation to that cockpit working group. And then we have other stakeholders in that meeting. We also have the astronaut office. We have safety. We have health and medical personnel. And we'll review the findings from their demonstrations or their testing and then discuss how does that get incorporated into the spacecraft design. So, and assist with uh, programmatic decision-making on that. This podcast is supported by K-Sharp, the human science research and human factors consultancy. If you want to know how innovating in the relationship between humans and technology can add value to your business, product, or research, then visit www.ksharp.co.uk. So does that um, that pilot working group does that also basically cover does that cover all the aspects of human input so everything from the engineering all the way through? It covers everything that the flight crew, the astronaut crew will interface with. There are some things external to the spacecraft that only the ground crew interfaces with that fall a bit outside of our scope, but it covers all the uh, astronaut uh, interfaces. Okay, and, that's cool. And just to chime in, there is a, another whole human factors group going on at, over at KSC. They work a lot with the ground crew over there and are working with uh, the launch and landing and also the, um, sorry, the um, sort of the procedures and such of, of, of the, uh, that development. You've, you talked about, about the, how, how much you get involved, but obviously, as you alluded to earlier, the, the environment that you're going into is, is not, not of this earth, is it? It, it, it is very much something else. So, um, Sarah, I wonder if you give us some insight about how you're able to test designs and ideas given the fact that you're uh, you're looking at a completely different environment? So we technically we try and, and accommodate all of those considerations. So in, during launch and landing, um, we know that they're gonna be experiencing acceleration and vibration. So we actually have done a test where we did vibration and we looked at legibility under vibration and making sure that you could still reach switches and operate switches under leg with um, vibration. Um, acceleration, we have a lot less opportunity to do any kind of testing with that. So we just sort of factor it and say, okay, during accelerations, you can't reach for all the things that you think you can reach. And we have designed with that in mind. Um, there's other things that we factor in like spinal elongation. You actually grow in space uh, by about 3% of your height. And with that, we, we do factor that in of when you, you've, uh, when you've, start the mission at launch you are shorter technically than when you come home so we we do build that into our our seat design and and the ability to actually change the seats for when you come home um there are also um, uh, other possibilities like a neutral body posture and the way you approach things in microgravity that we have to sit there and talk about with crew as to okay, if I'm going to be reaching for something on the ceiling, it's not a standard, I'm standing on the ground and reaching for the ceiling, I'm floating up there and I'm completely oriented differently. So we talk it through the crew and we talk about how that orientation is. So we can sometimes build mock-ups to put it in more into your central work envelope so that you can in, then interact with the device like as you would in microgravity, or we can keep it to the, the 1G mock-up and operate in there. But we are trying to always consider those effects of microgravity and space uh, influence so that we can design this program as best as we can. And how much do you make use of, you know, um, virtual modeling, sort of VR, AR, them sort of technologies? Have they got any use for you at all or, or not? 
So technically with modeling, we use it in, in part. So it has been really great for microgravity specific things that we can't simulate on the ground. For instance, in exercise, there is, it's a very odd angle that you're doing. It's, it's almost sort of like diagonal across the cabin where your feet are by the door, but your head's by the, the tunnel. And it's this angle that we can't simulate on the ground. So we've done actually a two part uh, thing where uh, our mock-up builders actually built a mock-up that is tiltable that would actually put you in the axis of rotation so that they can operate and do the exercises in 1G and look at clearance issues. But then we've also gone the modeling route and actually looked at the model to ensure that um, the clearance issues that we observed during testing could be solved for across the entire population for um, that particular uh, uh, motion that we were doing. So we've gone from modeling to sort of confirm it and to look at, at things more in depth and look across the width and breadth of the body. But we do like to uh, sort of have it a foundation of, of testing to draw from. Um, we also do look things at, uh, for microgravity, they also have done uh, work with the, uh, the guppy, the vomit comet, the, uh, the big plane <laughs> for microgravity. Um, they, they, uh, the exercise team actually did a whole bunch of, of testing with that to look at how the body behaves in microgravity for that same exercise test. So we're combining all these different levels of tests and analyses to try and have a good picture of how the design is impacted with this test. For the uh, Artemis One mission coming up next year, we actually use modeling to simulate some of the ground crew access to components on Orion uh, that they have to prepare for launch. Um, and it was one of the an area where we didn't have to go and do any kind of test. We couldn't do any testing on the launch pad with the integrated rocket and vehicle, so we had to do it in a VR environment to check for the reach uh, for ground crew members. So, okay, so. William, what, what do you see the considerations that you need to take into account when designing a spacecraft for manual piloting? Oh, for manual piloting. Uh, yeah, so um, some of the things uh, that you need to consider are, um, for example, you need to consider where where the, first of all, where is the pilot located in inside the spacecraft um, and making sure that they have a, a proper workstation to perform that piloting. So um, some things that we consider with as part of that are the ease of operating controls. Uh, for example, you need to factor in the entire anthropometric range um, and any critical dimensions uh, for, for those pilots who are in that workstation. So if they, if they have a, a longer segment of their arm, uh, you need to factor that into the, the adjustability of the controls. Um, uh, other factors are um, the legibility of displays. Um, so we need to consider uh, their ability to read off the displays and gather the information they need to pilot the vehicle, um, as well as things like glare. Like, so we, we look at the angle of the eye point in relation to lights around the cabin, and we try to make sure that we're minimizing any direct glare. Um, glare has actually been an interesting one because um, there's, there's so many different possibilities of re reflected lights. So we try to make a best effort to reduce that. Uh, but it's not something that we can totally eliminate. Um, as well as uh, the placement of windows. Uh, so we have certain requirements for them to have direct uh, direct line of sight between their eye point and out the window views for certain piloting tasks. Uh, so we, we need to consider that as well. Um, when we're actually doing the, the testing and rating the ability to pilot the vehicle, uh, we typically do that through what are called handling qualities uh, hiddles. Um, and interestingly, we actually have one that has been going on the past couple weeks where uh, we haven't been exactly sure how quickly the Orion avionics system is able to uh, respond 
uh, to operator input. So we've been gathering data to try to see uh, what is the what is the latent the inherent latency um, in the system that uh, that it needs to provide in order to have proper handling qualities uh, for for a pilot to control the vehicle. And how important do we think this uh, the manual handling is going to be? Because we've seen with um, uh, recent missions and stuff, automation is becoming a much greater. Um, part of this and there is certainly when I've talked to various operators in some of the platforms I've been playing with some people really like the idea of automation it makes their lives a lot easier some people hate it because they're losing losing control and you can't beat a bit of hands on stick um, where does where, where do you guys fall with this where, where where do you see the future of automation working for you yeah exactly um I'll give my answer and uh, Jason maybe you can chime in on this one too sure so um, primarily on Orion, on, in the Orion program, uh, we want to automate the steps where that would be more likely to have human error. And one of the, one of the areas that you, you're likely to have human error is, during the, is also during the most dangerous phase of flight, which is the, the launch and reentry portions. Uh, so the primary method uh, for, for those for the guidance, navigation, and control is to be automated. Uh, now, if anything goes wrong or if we're in an off-nominal situation, we want to keep the manual piloting capability as a backup uh, to give the, the crew the, the safe chance to get home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that represents uh, part of the challenge with automation. So uh, a lot of people have the conception that, that when you automate something that you automatically make the crew's job a lot easier. Uh, where really what you've introduced is uh, the crew needs to have more intimate knowledge of that not, uh, automation so that they can recognize when is that automation not doing what it should be doing? When do they need to inter interject? And what are the actions that they need to take from that point on? So at least until you've got automation that is fairly well vetted and understood and trusted, uh, there's going to be there's an extra burden uh, on the crew to to understand what's going on with that automation. Um, now, as William said, we 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 want to put this in place. We put it in place for safety critical functions like docking. Uh, however, because of the crew and their distance from home and the time it takes inherently uh, for a piece of data to get from Orion around the lunar uh, in lunar orbit or in near gateway back to Earth, the crew is in the best position to be able to respond to anything that goes wrong, and they're going to be able to respond quicker than what the most the mission control teams would do. So they have the capability to command where needed and to interrupt that automation where needed. So, so, so is that having a, an impact as well on how you're designing your um, the basically the screen interfaces or the, the your, your system interfaces because if you're having to provide them that much almost much more information and they've got to be able to absorb that information and be able to use it very quickly um how's that affecting how you're doing your design work so yes we do have to do testing uh, of all of our displays to make sure that the crew has the necessary information in front of them that they can view it from whichever seat they're sitting in uh, that the crew members see it consistently so that we've had to put quite a bit of effort into uh, evaluating and developing those displays uh, to make sure that the crew has the, that needed information uh, so it's taken quite a bit of time from william and sarah's team to, to pull that off if you are a human factors practitioner or in a related discipline and are not already a member, then do look up the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors. They are the professional institution for all human factors practitioners. 
Find them at www.ergonomics.org.uk. Um, Sarah, uh, I mean, it's going to sound a bit of a silly question in a way because of the nature of what it is you're doing, but where do you think that you're probably breaking new ground with what you're doing? So I really don't have a comparison to what we did in Shuttle or Apollo. I wasn't back then, um, but uh, there's been some unique testing over the years. I mean, we I mentioned that we had legibility testing. We had legibility testing under vibration, which um, according to our folks at Ames was the first human vibration legibility testing since 1970 or so at JSC. Wow. So. Okay. Orion has also looked at off nominal landing scenarios. We, we're working with um, those rescue and recovery folks where the module uh, doesn't upright. Or, and so what we did was we actually built a test rig to actually simulate if a, uh, the mock-up is oriented in an off nominal um, way. And so then we've actually simulated having crew egress from those seats and, and simulate that drop to see if it's actually doable for crew to get out of the seats and not suffer any kind of um, prolonged medical effects from hanging in that harness in those, those configurations. So um, that hasn't, I, I don't think that's ever been done before because we just sort of said, hopefully we can get the mo module back <laughs> up, right? And everyone just gets to sit there and hang. Um, and then we also, as I mentioned before, that, that spinal elongation, um, it's now built into our, our requirements that we actually have to factor in spinal elongation. And I don't think that's ever really been done in previous programs. We knew about it uh, in the shuttle days, but building it into our actual requirements and making sure that, that the crew is accommodated for that growth is, is all, all new ground there. Cool. It's, um, do you, are you doing anything in terms of your human factors processes um, that you think other um, other disciplines could learn from um, or other platforms could learn from? So I, I think for, for us, uh, we the one-on-one -on -one user engagement with astronauts is probably unique to the human factors industry. And there's a lot of different industries that, that work with their own users, but there, it's not necessarily like I can go to the crew office and, and place something in front of them and say, I need your feedback and, and get that immediately where with, I, I think other industries, there's more of a, a, a gap between the actual users and, and, and the human factors personnel. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of the, the feedback that we get from our, our crew and our, even our, all the different groups that are involved, ground crew and whatnot, uh, in dealing with um, the human space flight and, and getting us to that better product. Cool. And Alongside with everything that you've done so far, I guess the what's the most surprising thing that you've had to consider? Something that maybe you didn't think that you're going to have to consider at all. So I, I can jump in first for for mine. It's uh, the, the the sheer wealth and breadth of topics that you can potentially deal with in a week. I mean, <laughs> we could have a meeting at, about uh, you know trash and odor control. We could be having a meeting about umbilical lengths and how long they, those need to be. Uh, getting into the nitty gritty of strength and a deconditioned astronaut. So deconditioning is where um, uh, crew is suffering from uh, basically neurological effects of being out uh, in microgravity and then coming back to gravity and uh, how uh, strength that, that you would need to operate handles, even things like fecal canisters and, and how to deal with urine and, and such. I mean, way, way, way different topics that we, we've never really, I, I was never really expecting to deal with as, as uh, in terms of the sheer breadth of topics. Yeah, I like to tell students that no matter what you're interested in, we could use it here at NASA because when you're talking about designing a spacecraft that people will live in for an extended period of time, then naturally you have to uh, look at all of the aspects of life, everyday life, and, and replicating those in the zero-g environment. 
Yeah, that's yeah. fair enough. William, have you got any, from your perspective, what, what have you found that's been um, surprising? Yeah, so one recent example that I that I had was um, we've been dealing with the, so the Orion has two different ways of getting out of it. There's a primary way of, of emergency egressing, which is through the side hatch. Um, there's a secondary way of egressing, which is through the docking hatch. Um, if, if the if the crew were called upon to use the side hatch, there's a, a couple ways of opening it up. Uh, well, the, the the primary way for emergency egresses is by pulling a pyro handle, um, and that uh, uh, that operates in a pneumatic system, which will open up the side hatch and keep it open. Uh, one interesting aspect to me was that in the post-landing environment um, and also in the pre-launch environment, you've got some different factors that affect that hatch. You've got uh, wave conditions uh, that will be rocking the vehicle back and forth and affecting the safety margins on that hatch. You've also got wind con conditions to factor in. Uh, so that was a, a, a very interesting one to me to see how those um, Earth-based terrestrial uh, uh, factors um, affect the the hold what we call the holding margin or the the margin for keeping that hatch open. Um, and that was that was actually a case where we we started a redesign effort to to place in an auto lock feature so that when the hatch opens, you've got a mechanical stop that will that will keep it open. Um, so that that was that was what I found to be a pretty interesting uh, case study recently in the yeah, yeah. program. Cool. And so obviously you've, you've done a, a lot of work to date, um, all three of you, so, but there's still a long way to go. So uh, Sarah, from your perspective, what's the biggest challenge you can see coming up? So for what we are doing, we're, we're shifting from sort of Armis 1 and 2 over to Armis 3 and beyond. So one big thing is that once we sort of hit Armis 2, it's the vehicle sort of done. It's there's no changes that we can really institute on a vehicle wide level. It's more of a uh, like say you had a car and the car is now sitting in your driveway. You're not in, in the assembly plant. You're not in the manufacturing plant. That car is sitting in your driveway. So now if you need a new window, <laughs> um, you need to really have uh, discussions about whether it's really needed or not. So that's some of the things we're encountering with Artemis 3. And when we start getting into docking as we need a switch or we need an extra stanchion or we need, a, we need these particular elements. Maybe we can and maybe we can't put it where we want it to put, be put. So the biggest challenges is now with these uh, beyond missions with anything past uh, Artemis 2 is if there's a major change that's needed in the mock-up, we might not be able to execute it. So now we sort of are dealing with what we've got. And so it's the workarounds that are going to be the challenges of where can we put it now as an alternative um, instead of the best place, what's the next best place? Okay. And William, from your perspective, what, what's your big challenges coming up? Yeah, so I, I kind of had the same uh, answer as, as Sarah, actually. Um, it's really that uh, we, we're designing the spacecraft. Uh, so, so also to elaborate on Sarah's answer, um, Artemis 1 mission is, is going to be the, the uncrewed uh, initial flight of, of the Orion spacecraft that will go around the moon. Um, Artemis 2 will be the first crewed flight. Uh, and that's the, so Artemis, the Artemis 2 mission is where many of the crew systems will have their first flight. Um, for example, the ECLA system, uh, the, the controls uh, and things of that nature. Um, so really that's, that's our first flight that we're designing most of our hardware for. Um, after Artemis 2, uh, for Artemis 3, the, 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 what we'll be introducing is either a manual uh, docking exercise, a manual piloting exercise to prepare for docking, or, uh, or actual docking of, of some kind. 
Um, and after that point, um, it's really the, the, the concept for the program is basically called build to print, where you'll just build the same vehicle uh, again and again, unless there's a, a specific design change that's agreed upon to be implemented. So the biggest challenge uh, that, that I agree with Sarah is um, making sure that we have uh, avenues to identify the, the needed human factors improvements to the spacecraft um, and to get those implemented for those later missions. Cool. And so, and finally, Jason, from your perspective, what do you see as your future challenges, but also what opportunities do you see coming down the line? So let me build on William's answer there, because I think really one of the biggest challenges we have now is, all right, you have an Orion vehicle, an Orion capsule that is built that we know will carry the crew from Earth to the moon. Uh, and now we have a gateway, a lunar uh, habitat that's in development we also have the human landing system so lander that's also in development and we have to take our uh, built design and make sure that it's working properly with these two conceptual designs uh, and those the the entities that are building the lander prototypes and that are they're building the gateway modules uh, they're all working really fast so it's going to be a big challenge for us to make sure that we integrate appropriately and make sure that when we put all of these elements together uh, that that allows the crew to safely operate and successfully operate out in lunar space. Uh, so that I, I think is is our biggest challenge here, but it's you take that challenge on knowing that we are trying to do something that we haven't done uh, really ever before, because this isn't just about going and putting the, the flag down on the lunar surface. This is about going and having a permanent presence uh, a lasting presence where we can do more science, where we can test out technologies that are needed for future deep space exploration uh, and really set ourselves up well for the future and the future of uh, human space exploration. So uh, it's hard not to be excited by that. I'll take it to goosebumps just thinking about yeah. the, um, the that legacy that you're going to be handing over with this sort of project. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity to, to thank all three of you for your, um, for your time this morning, uh, for me this afternoon. Um, it is really important that, and I think it's a real uh, great thing to see that Human Factors has got such a strong presence um, in what is such a um, phenomenal program. So all I can do is wish you um, good luck with it in the future. Um, and I envy you beyond all belief for the um, for the type of project you're doing. Um, and, and yeah, good luck with it. But thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Barry. Thank, thank you. Thank you for listening to 1202 the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense. <laughs>